If we could turn to Acts chapter 12 altogether. Acts chapter 12. By the way, this new cross in front of us, now you know that you're coming to a church and it really helps identify it. It's really beautiful and it was made by Cassie's father. So I think it's a great, I, I, I really, really like it. Does anybody know how to stain wood? Okay. So I guess I'm staining wood this week. So maybe with like a, a brown stain or something, it would be really beautiful. You have stain? Are you volunteering? <laughs> Your dad likes to stain wood? Oh, he does woodwork. Okay. Afterwards, please take the cross, stain it beautifully, and then bring it next week. Um, so, yeah, I know. I, my, kids, my kids do that too. Kids and animals. Um, it's very beautiful. So last week we um, were up to Acts chapter 12 and um, we didn't get to finish because it, it was a lot. So this week we're going to continue in Acts chapter 12, our teaching, our core um, development. Um, and so if you have your new notes or the notes from last Sunday um, or you know, the notes from this week, it's, it's the same. And uh, we talked, we took this passage, this, this story um, and we talked along two headings, experiencing God and shuffling the deck. Basically, um, the story is kind of like, um, you know, last Sunday I used the analogy of, you know, it's, it's, it's like this episode of a movie where you have um, everything falling apart. And, you know, you're thinking the movie is supposed to move towards plot resolution. Everything's supposed to come together. The good guys are supposed to win. And win the day, but instead you see the story going from bad to worse and it looks like the whole thing is going to collapse. Acts chapter 12 is the juncture in, in, this, in this story where it looks, it's kind of like that point in the movie where everything looks like it's about to collapse. Um, you have James, um, the brother of John, so one of the big three, one of the leaders of the church, uh, he gets executed. And not only that, you have Peter um, captured by King Herod and about to be executed as well. So you have two of the three leaders of the early church about to um, be killed, and that, is, that would have been the end of the church. So the story kind of hangs on a thread, or it, it walks along a knife's edge, as it were. Everything is about to fall apart. But just at the right moment, you see the Ewoks come through or you see a little hobbit make it to the mountain, or you see some twist of the story where somehow miraculously um, they break through and the story resolves. Except in this story, it's not a little robot or it's not, you know, a, a hobbit. In this story, God is the hero. God is the one that turns the key right at the right moment and literally unlocks the gates so that Peter can walk free. The point of this, and I think the reason this is a good way to start off 2015 is because the point is our, our lives, your life in 2015 is not in the control of some droid or some twist of fate or some hobbit. Your life is in control of the Almighty God who has everything under control. And that which is beyond your control. Um, Sarah, where, where did she go? Well, Sarah rightly, Sarah rightly, you know, I think uh, appropriately talked about wanting to let go of control. 
And that's the thing. Not everything is in our control. If you're a control freak like myself, that which is not within your control, it's in somebody's control. It's in God's control. So we see, we see God in control of the story, that what could effectively shut down the church is done. Um, all of a sudden, click, the gate opens, and Peter walks free. God is not going to let his church die. Um, a great verse to start off the new year. Um, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Peter walks free, and this is where we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 12, uh, verse 12, Acts chapter 12, verse 12. Peter, realizing that he was free, went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And I talked about this last Sunday, how um, uh, it, it's interesting that this Mary, this is not Mary Magdalene, this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, this is another Mary, but she has a house. Wait a second, you have a house? Didn't everybody in the church sell their houses back in Acts chapter 4 and gave it to the poor? But here you have somebody that retained her house, and not only that, was more effective. Her house was more effective in hosting and in opening it up. Um, so she opened up her home. It, it was big enough for the entire church to gather there. We're, it's going to be like that today after this. Um, everybody was gathered there, and they ordered 14 pizzas, and... Um, all the children were playing, and they must have had somebody watching the children, maybe some of the singles helping out watch the children. And it was a big enough home. I, and I think um, it gives us a picture that it's not biblically mandated that you have to sell your house and give it to the poor or give it to the church, but it is certainly biblically mandated that we, do, we should practice radical hospitality and radical hosting. Um, this radical hospitality is, uh, there's a better argument for that in Scripture. There isn't a strong argument for enforced social practice or socialism in the church, but there definitely is a prescription for how we should open up our homes and radically do that. You know, June was even sharing with me about the days when he was a child growing up as a kid, and in his father's house, they did something very similar where they had people in their home, and church planting started like that, and, and that's what we're talking about. This radical hospitality, it's a lot of work cleaning up, and it's a lot of, but that's how... Um, I think that's, that's what Jesus says when he says, love your neighbor. Um, and even when we talk about woven groups after this, um, you know, inviting people into our homes and hospitality. And, um, but we'll continue on from there. So the whole church is gathered at Mary's house and they're praying for Peter. They're praying for a breakthrough. And at this point in the story, it starts to get a little humorous. Um, I think the author s certainly... He tells the story a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, and in verse 13, Peter finds his way to Mary's house, and he knocks. And a servant girl named Rhoda, this is verse 14, Rhoda came to answer, and when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced, Peter is there. Peter's standing at fr in the front of the gate. And in the verse, 16, uh, verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind. You are out of your mind. This is one of those places, I, I'm always entertained by this, where an entire English sentence is compacted into one Greek word. Um, when you look at the Greek the original, it, was, it just says, myne, myne. I mean, imagine what that must have said, myne. It almost sounds Korean, michasa, which, for, sorry, for, but that, that, that word right there, um, it, it means you're lunatic. I mean, if you literally translate myne, what it says is you're raving. 
You're ranting. You're raving. You're talking crazy talk. Of course it's not Peter. It's his angel. That's what it says in verse 15. I'm not going to get into that. I, I don't have, I, I, I don't know what to say about that, honestly. Um, <laughs> it's just funny. It's just funny that they call her a maniac. Duh, it's his angel, which to me sounds even more bizarre. Um, but in verse 16, Peter continues knocking and they say, well, angels, they don't, they don't, do they do this? So they walked to the door and they opened it and they saw Peter and they were amazed. And Peter, motioning to them with his hand, shh, to be silent, there's spies everywhere. He describes to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. You see, in 2015, the Lord will perhaps lead you out of your prison. The Lord will open the gates What's not in your control has got to be in somebody's control. And if we're surrendering and if we're making the right choices with our lives, you can confidently say God will pick up the slack. If we're making the right choices with our lives, then we can confidently say that which is not in my control. So there are certain things that are within your control and you should have control over certain things in your life, but that which is out of your control, if you know that you're living your life with integrity, you can rest confident God will pick up the slack. God's in control of his church. And in verse 17, Peter, although God's in control, you have to shuffle the deck a little bit because clearly Peter can't go hide in Mary's house. Where are the authorities going to check first? So at the risk of his own life, at the risk of their lives, he has to go somewhere else. So Peter says in verse 17, and this is a very important verse. You think it's just passing statement, but it's, it's crucial because everything changes here. By the way, chapter 12 is a very transitional chapter in Acts. In verse 17, it's a very transitional verse. Peter says, report these things to James and the brethren. And then he left and went to another place. So as I said, number one, Peter couldn't stay there at the risk of their lives. He had to go somewhere else. So what you have here happening is Peter going underground. Peter going underground as a fugitive. He has to hide from Herod um, and the authorities. But it's so interesting. It's so interesting because what you have is P the book of Acts, the first 12 chapters, starting off with Peter and a very public ministry, very public but then at this point, at this verse, going underground. Now, who was underground up to this point previously? Saul. So you have Peter, public, going underground, but you also have Saul, underground, about to emerge publicly. And we're going to see that at the close of the chapter. So once again, Peter, public, going underground. Saul, underground, but about to emerge for his public ministry in a very powerful way. Um, I'm looking forward next week to, to teaching Acts chapter 13 because it's starting to get, it's going to start heating up. Pete, um, Paul is going to emerge and things are going to happen. But all to say that in the meantime, um, Peter, as he says, I'm going underground, tell James. Why does he say that? Why does he say, say tell James? He says that because um, somebody else has to run the ship. So if I were to go on vacation, I might say, tell Bobby or tell, you know, whoever. Tell, um, you know, what did Picard say to number two always? You have what? You, you, have the, you have the seat or something like that, right? You have what? Con? 
you have the bridge. You have the, you have the con, you have the, the bridge. Um, you have the bridge. So that's what he's basically saying to James. You have the bridge. You have, this, you have the hot seat. You're, you're running the ship now, is what he's saying. Isn't James dead? Didn't James just get killed? This is not the same James. This is one of those things where it's very confusing because in the early Jewish Greek church, they had like 12 James, 12 Marys, and 12 Johns. Very confusing. This is not the same James as the one that was killed. This James, it's interesting, and I want to sit here a little bit. This James was actually the brother of Jesus. His nickname, the way they distinguished him was, they called him James the Just. James the Just. And this guy was, was the person who was, it was kin, the brother of Jesus. And that, I think, is interesting because when you dig through the Gospels a little bit um, and you read up about this James, it turns out that this James did not believe in his brother. He didn't believe in his brother. Now, all of you, you just came back from your holidays. Some of you were with your brothers or your sisters or your folks or your in-laws. Um, Hopefully, your experience is one where, you, you know, it's, 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 you know, very peaceful <laughs> during the holidays. Um, but some of, you can, some of you can relate when I say, you know, I've spent three days with my brother and that was enough. Or I spent three days with my, um, unless you, you're like Sarah and Sang, <laughs> which like, I, I'm, I'm like, I hope my children grow up like that. It's a very, it's a very good relationship. Um, but imagine, imagine turning your family business over to your brother or your sister. Imagine not only turning your family business over to your relative, but imagine them actually being convinced to take over the family business, so to speak. This is not just any random church. This is the church in Jerusalem. This is the central church at this point. Um, so what we see is, you know, the family business, so to speak, gets turned over to the brother of Jesus. And that even more, it's more telling when you look in the Gospels in Mark chapter 3 and John chapter 7, that in the beginning, they didn't really get along. There was a point where Jesus' brothers and mothers, they didn't even believe him. They didn't even believe him. His mothers and brothers, it says in Mark 3, they went out to take custody of Jesus because they were saying, you know, you want to take another one sentence and put it into one word. They were saying, he cray. He's just straight up <laughs> crazy. Exceste is what it says in Greek. He's lost his senses. And then in John 7, it says, not even his brothers believed in him. The point I'm making is imagine making a believer out of your brother or your sister or your family member. You know, I was, I was talking about this with Andrew last night. One of the worst things about going home for the holidays is, is you're home for the holidays. You're not at work. And so it's almost like, you know, your family and your, your parents and, you know, they see you not at your best. You're kind of off speed. You know, they see you kind of sleeping in late a little bit or they see you kind of, you know, is that what, you, is that what your life is really, you know, and, and um, no, I have a job. You know, I, I'm actually a producing member of society. I it's just, so it's the sense where um, um, 
kind of... Um, James, becoming convinced, becomes a believer. He becomes a leader of the church. And he would even die for the gospel. There's a story about how um, at the moment of his death, the ancient legend goes, um, the Jewish authorities were so upset with him, they took him and they, throw him off a, they threw him off a building. James the Just. And when they threw him, and this had been after a long tenure as a leader of the church, James the Just fell off the building and he survived. So they went downstairs and they started picking up millstones and crushing it on his head. And the last words before he died, you know what they were? Anybody want to guess? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Does that sound familiar? The same words that his brother used at his death are the same words that James would use. I mean, what I'm trying to drive at is here is if his brother was convinced, then there must be something true about it. There must be something. I mean, even his brother would become convinced. Even his brother, who was not a believer, would become convinced. And, you know, you know I, I left a couple of hashtags on your, in your notes to fill in, you know, fill in it what you want. Hashtag, it must be true. Hashtag, true believers. Hashtag, you got to believe it. Hashtag, that's a testimony. If his brother believes, then why shouldn't we? Um, or why should not we as well? So, even his brother would become a believer and would, at this point, at this point, would take over the helm and would lead the, the church to the, next, um, to the next stage. But getting back to this whole trusting that God is in control thing, um, in verse 18, verse 18, when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers. Um, when Herod had searched and had not found him, he examined the guards, ordered that they be led away to execution. A little bit harsh, No. And so Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. And he was very angry with the people of Tyre, Sidon, and with one accord they came, having won over Blastus, uh, asking for peace. On the appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, um, according to Jewish legend, and tradi actually some sources, he was wearing like a silver robe. And the silver robe, as he stepped out in the morning light, the, sun, the, the rising sun shone on him, and he was like this, this just, they, they called him like a god. He, silver robe that shined in the light. And he took his seat on the rostrum and he began delivering an address to them. And the people wouldn't let him, you know, they were crying out, the voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. Very, very interesting story. And um, how do you even scientifically explain what happened to Herod? Um, all to say that you have a story that begins with Herod persecuting the church. Let me get this right. You have the story beginning with Herod persecuting the church and triumphing. James dead and Peter in prison. You close the story out with Peter free, Herod dead, and the word of God triumphing. It's a complete turn in fortune. 
It's this thing where you th- it's the inevitable seems inevitable, and yet God completely reverses the fortunes. So this Herod, um, at this point, um, we don't know exactly what happened to him. Some, you know, some ancient, you know, when you read the commentary, some people think it might have been a conspiracy. I mean, how is it that you get sick and then you die within five days? Exactly what happened to him? This whole thing about worms, you know, we don't know exactly what that means. But from some of the sources, uh, there was talk of conspiracy. Some people think that he, you know, it, it, he, he got some kind of a sickness. Um, he had worms, literally. Um, but maybe we can just take it at face value. God had a hand in it. God had a hand in it. Um, so where the story started off, Herod aggressing, the church languishing, you see a complete reversal, the church triumphing, and Herod dead. And then you have the words that close off in verse 24, but, but, the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. The church triumphant in the end is the picture. Not only that, but this is where you see Barnabas and Saul in verse 25 returning from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. In other words, here in verse 25 you see Saul now re-emerging. So even for those of you that relate to that whole 10-year, 10-year, decade-long you know, wilderness experience, Saul, he had si- his silent years, as I taught previously, 10 years just dropping off the radar. Doing what? Just, I don't know, like learning the ways of the forest or something. Ten years, but now, in God's good timing, in God's good timing, he emerges. The fill in the blank and the last principle is simply this. And I've probably already said it. What is out of our control is in his. What is out of our control is in his. And especially if we live lives of integrity, we can rest assured that Whatever is not in our control, God will pick up the slack. And so I don't have to worry about it. Don't have to worry about it. That's the secret of this thing called the serenity prayer. The secret of the serenity prayer is, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. That which is not in my control, I can't change it. Give me the serenity to accept it. Let it go. I can't control it. But... Give me the courage, having said that, to change that which I can and must. So, you know, in closing, I'll just remind us all. Um, you all remember the story of baby, baby Luke, right? Don't forget that story. That at the moment of the first day when we started this church, and I was thinking, you know, what does this mean that, on the birthday, what will be remembered as the birthday of our church, that I'm getting ready to prepare for last rites or something. And you remember how that afternoon, you know, I remember even on that first day, some of you were crying, and we had a prayer meeting. We were praying. We are praying for you guys, Andy. We are praying for Luke. We are praying for Kathy. And... Um, and it was, it, it was very emotional. I, 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 I've known Kathy for a couple of years. I've never seen her cry like that, that Saturday when we saw her. 
Um, and we thought that their baby wasn't going to make it. And then we remember praying, and then that afternoon actually going to the hospital and saying something miraculous is happening. And for the, um, the doctors even to be crying and saying, we didn't expect this. This was a big surprise. And then later on in the week, finding out that there was no brain infarcation and no brain death. Um, later on, finding and just seeing for me in a very vi visceral way from Saturday night to the following Saturday, the transformation, it's almost as if to say, God's timing in that was almost immaculate. Oh, God's timing in that, that on the birthday of our church, almost seeing a resurrection, uh, seeing something so drastically happen. Again, it's got to be real, right? Hashtag <laughs> testimony. Hashtag too good to be true. So um, all to say, um, as I conclude and just finish this off, God is in control, and um, I know that's such a cliche. It's almost such a, you know, well, God is in control. Well, that doesn't make me feel better. Um, but the truth, of it, the truth of it is, is if we're living lives of integrity and we're able to trust, we can let go of things knowing that he'll pick up the slack. Um, and so in 2015, my prayer is that um, all of us, that woven covenant church, Woven Covenant Church, entrusting ourselves up to God and the good things that He will do, um, and just getting ready to be surprised. Just getting ready to be surprised. Amen?